message I want to talk to you today about Jesus' prayer for the church. I'll read the scripture to you in a moment from John 17. But I want, by way of introduction, I want to talk about a verse in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus gave us a promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome it. You know and I know that the people of God, people who have put their faith in Christ are the church. You know that, don't you? And when we see ourselves hopeless against the task, remember Jesus said, I will build my church if we let him. I will build my church through committed believers. Now, upon this rock, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We've got to go back into the context and see that Jesus had just finished asking Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter's great confession of faith, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, God bless you, Pete. You didn't get that from a book. You didn't get that off the, off the web site. You, your Father in heaven revealed that truth to you when you said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this piece of stone or rock, I am going to build my church. Jesus says, I am the true rock. I'm the cornerstone, I'm the headstone on which to build. And Jesus says to Peter, you're a living stone. You're a pillar. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church through people like you who are committed and who are dedicated followers of the Lord Jesus. But Peter was just one of the builders. He was one of the pillars. Who is this Peter that Christ said he would build his church through? He was the most unstable and the most erratic of all the disciples. He was like, well, his heart was like a rock, but he was the most erratic as a person could be. Jesus knew that. Peter probably knew that. Peter's fisherman's friends knew that he was unstable and erratic. He was quick to act, quick to react, and he could not stand the strain of disapproval or suspicion. He's probably more like sand than a rock. And yet I want to tell you people today that Jesus takes this person believes in him when he didn't really believe in himself. He sees the underlying qualities of strength and leadership and makes him into a person that Jesus wants him to be. Jesus saw the potential in this man and changes him from the inside out and Peter was greatly used by God. And I want to tell you people today that Jesus can take you and me as inconsistent as we may be 
and as erratic as we may be and as unstable as we may be, he can take you and he can take me and change us from the inside out. Amen? And use us to help build his church. You can have a part to play in the building of his church in the area of North Lakes and beyond. However, having said that, and knowing what kind of church we would like to become, we have to go to the Word of God to find out um, why we are here and what are the ingredients of an effective church. And so Jesus begins to pray in John 17 to his Father, that high priestly prayer, and he begins to pray and begin to show us things that are very important for us to be doing and to lay the foundation on which to build the kind of church that God wants us to become. He, as I said before, and I'll probably say it a number of times, Jesus builds his church through willing, committed believers. Now, <clears throat> Jesus has confidence that the message that he brought into the world that you and I are going to carry on that message till he comes again. Till all in the world have heard the message and then he's going to come a second time. But Jesus, this is the part that gets me, Jesus is placing confidence in you and in me to carry on the work that he began. Why he did that, I will never know. When he could do a much better job than we could, and yet he chose inconsistent people, fallible people, to carry on the work to spread the message of the cross throughout the world so that people may believe. Paul said one time in 2 Peter 4, 17, but the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And then in John 17, Jesus reports back to the Father at least eight times and he says, Father, those things that you've asked me to do have already now been done. Mission complete. But the part that concerns me today is not the fact that the Father's purpose has been accomplished, but now Jesus begins to pray for you and me to carry on and that our faith will not fail and that we will go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, living supernatural lives, transformed lives, being salt and light into the community. And so I read to you from John 17. Oh, there we go. John 17 and verses 13 to 24. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctified myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. And may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Did you pick that up? That God loves you just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you gave me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Great passage of scripture, huh? So I want to give to at least four or five things that uh, Jesus prays for that you and I might experience. Are you ready? Bibles open, pencils poised, ready to write? And this is especially for those who are members of this church. Number one is that you and I would sense the glory of God. That you and I would sense the glory of God. Can someone help me out here? You and I would sense the glory of God. And that is the visible manifestation of his power and his splendor and his radiance. We're talking about the presence of God. It's another way of saying the glory of God. The Shekinah glory that settled like a cloud in the Old Testament. And today we would call it an atmosphere within the church or God's presence in the church. You've probably heard me say before, I don't like the term, uh, God really showed up today, <clears throat> because he's already here. Where two or three are gathered, he's already showing up. It's a matter whether you and I show up. That's the issue. He's already here. That visible presence of the invisible, immortal, only wise God. That presence that Isaiah saw when he saw God high and lifted up in the temple. That visible presence that invaded the Holy of Holies. That visible presence of God that guided the children of Israel and that they could see and sense his presence. 
It was a manifestation of his majesty and his power that guided them. That glory that caused Jesus uh, to pray that we would sense when we come together in worship, that glory that causes us to respond in a tangible way through prayer and worship. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says, John says, And the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think of it. John's writing this, and he says, We beheld his glory. We saw it. We sensed it. We felt it. The glory of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus would pray today that that we would sense his glory, the glory of his presence. Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of that glory. But when you become a believer in Christ, that glory has been restored in you. Amen? It's been restored. Think of it. You have the glory of God within you right now if you're a believer in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just as the glory was in the temple in the Old Testament that fell upon the place and the buildings. So it's the same glory that's in your temple, my temple, my life today. It's the same glory. Does that excite you? Or does that frighten you? (laughs) That's the same glory within you that's in this temple today. In other words, we can manifest and radiate his presence and uh, his uh, sweetness in a bitter world. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm not talking, I'm talking about the presence of God within you. I'm not talking about a powerful program, but a moving of the Holy Spirit where we come today and taste and see that the Lord is really good. Wesley witnessed on August 11, 1755, after a covenant service, 1,800 people stood to acknowledge God's power and God's presence. Wesley went on to say that such a a night I, I scarce ever saw before. Surely the fruit of it should remain forever. So Jesus prayed that we would sense his glory and his power and his presence. There may be some here today that don't even know what I'm talking about. You've never sensed his glory. You've never sensed his presence. Well, maybe we can help you if you're interested to know how you can sense and feel and experience the power of God on your life. The membership of this church need to experience afresh his glory and his presence so that we can be attractive in a crooked and a perverse generation. I think I've mentioned briefly before, three or four months ago, when we were in Gympie, my wife and I looking after the church up there while the pastor went on long service, service leave. The whole six to seven weeks we were there, every Sunday we sensed God's presence. Now, this is supposed to be a conservative church. People responded almost every Sunday. 
and we could sense the presence of God and the glory of God came upon that church. There was one special occasion, it was on Good Friday. They had the crosses either side and one brought down, there were three, across the aisle and we had communion and I invited people to come forward to take the bread and the cup. And if they wanted to stay at the front and worship the Lord during that time, feel free to do that. If you want to go back, that's fine too. During the week, the pianist asked me, Graham, do you know this old song in Alexander's hymn book? And I said, yeah, I do, Dale, I, I know that. And she said, I feel like I'd like to play that during communion. Well, look, if you do, no one's going to know it, but put the words up on the screen and let them see it, the words, as you play. That, and she did. It was a really moving time. And then I said, Dale, would you just like to sing the chorus? And she, she sang the chorus, and I uh, did a few bars from what I knew and remembered. And it went like this. These are the words. They are nailed to the cross. There was one who was willing to die in my stead that a soul, someone worthy, might live. And the path to the cross he was willing to tread all the sins of my life to forgive. And then the chorus went, they are nailed to the cross. They are nailed to the cross. Oh, how much he was willing to bear. With what anguish and loss, Jesus went to the cross and he carried my sins with him there. That's a hymn. Sure, there was emotion there. And I said, I was standing on the other side and I could see these people standing and their mouths were going like this. Out the front with the cup, the bread and the cup, worshipping the Lord. And we're supposed to finish and go for morning tea and go and have hot cross buns. And I said, folks, that's the last thing we want to do. We're in God's presence. We're sensing the glory of God. And as you heard me say a couple of weeks back, I've never taken drugs in my life, but they tell me, they tell me it gives you a bit of a lift. I've never tasted alcohol in my life, and they tell me it makes you feel good, but nothing ever comes close to the presence of God. We need to long for that, to sense his presence, to bathe in his presence, to respond in his presence. Amen? All right, better go on. The second thing Jesus prayed for is that we would follow the word of God. Now, the disciples experienced Jesus' words that gave the disciples meaning to life and they understood why Jesus came and then when they understood why he came, it gave them motivation for life and when they believed that, it gave them a mission for life. So when we get into the word and the word begins to get into us, you begin to have meaning in your life. Members of this church, you have to be into the Word and the Word needs to be getting into you. 
You can do, not do that spasmodically. It's got to be a daily walk with God into the Word daily and the Word getting into you. Thank you, Lord. That's good preaching. I know that. when we get into the Word and understand it's for you, you have meaning in life and you discover that we can claim His promises and what we read we begin to obey as if it's our own and then it motivates us and when we realise that the Word of God touches the lives of others and we learn that the Word of God will not return void, it begins to give us a mission in life. I can't emphasise enough to the leadership and the members of this church, the importance of proclaiming the word with power and letting it live in you. This church, our denomination, has a high view of the word of God and the scripture. And I want to tell you it's the word of God that separates us, folks. It gives us a different value system and begins to separate us from the world's values. It's the Word of God that strengthens us. It's, uh, David said in the Psalms, Thy word have I hid in my heart, Lord, that I might not sin against you. It's the Word of God that sanctifies us. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In other words, it makes us clean. Reading the Word, it makes us clean. It's the Word of God that sets us apart. It's the Word of God that saves us and satisfies us and all the other S's you can think of that would match. It's the Word of God that does all those things. We need to be established in the Word of God. Can't rely on our own ability or emotions daily to get you through. You have to be into the Word and the Word's got to be into you. Number three, Jesus' prayer. Not only that we sense his glory and that we establish in the word, but that we be united in the love of God. Oh, boy. That we be united in the love of God. Verse 21, the purpose of being united in love with God and with other Christians is that so the world might believe. This prayer, obviously, was answered at Pentecost when 120 were in the upper room. They were all in one accord, one place, ready for the coming and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And God came upon them and filled them with the Holy Spirit and the rest is history. Peter gets up and, and preaches and 3,000 get saved in one day. I'm sure it's a prayer that you and I want fulfilled here in this church in Axis. particularly when we're getting a new pastor about to come in. We need to be united in the love of God. We don't want a new pastor coming in while we're not united in the love of God. The problem with too many churches is that everybody is wanting to beat the big drum with few willing to face the music and nobody wants to play second fiddle. <laughs> But when you get the body together, united in the love of God, then God begins to do great things. Unity amongst Christians is the one thing that can reveal to non-believers that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I'm probably one of the few that could say this. I don't think we've done too well in the last 13 months about being united in the love of God. But I do believe 
there's the sound of heavy rain are coming. I do believe there's showers of blessing are coming. True, we've had mercy drops around us are falling, but for the showers we please, <laughs> amen? I feel that in my bones. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants the church, believers, you and me, to be unified as a powerful witness to the reality of God's love. And everyone will know we are Christians by our love. The question today is, are you helping to unify the body of Christ, the church, or are you in a subtle way trying to destroy the unity? Jesus prayed for unity among believers based on the believers' unity with him and the Father. In other words, Christians can know unity amongst themselves if they are living in union with God. And if we are into the word daily and the word is getting into you and you are living it out, the natural response is to promote unity amongst one another in the church. Otherwise, our negative attitudes can be used to divide the church. We are to build each other up in the faith. As believers, we are to avoid the gossiping and the arguing. We are to build one another up, work together in humility and exalt Christ, refuse to get sidetracked over divisive matters. And the result of being built up, as I shared at the prayer meeting on Tuesday, the result of being built up in the faith is unity in the spirit, spiritual maturity. Now, not all of us are going to agree on all things, but you can have unity with diversity if we become mature. If you become mature, you learn to disagree agreeably. You make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. You live a life worthy of the calling, bearing with one another in love, showing humility to one another. And that's the result of being built up. It is possible to believe in Christ and work hard for the church and yet have broken relationships with one another who are committed to the same cause. And Paul had to address that in Philippians chapter 4 with two women. Remember that story? I won't go into that, but you want to read that in chapter 4. He had to address that. There was a divisive nature within the church, even though they're on the same side, preaching the same gospel, <laughs> trying to build the same church. There was a divisive attitude there and that had to be corrected in order for God to continue the move. All right. Well, let me see if I can find something you like. <laughs> Number four, Jesus prayed that we would go forward in the mission of God. So, verse 13, what's the mission? To send the church into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. To proclaim the message of the cross. Not just by what we've seen and heard, but by our life and the changes that Christ has made in our life. I think I did use this uh, maybe two or three years back 
when my wife and I were in Amsterdam at the Billy Graham Congress on Evangelism, we heard one brilliant preacher, Ravi Zacharias. And, uh, and he asked the question, how do you reach a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And he said, we need a message that is not only heard, but seen. And if our mission is to reach this generation, we will have to live lives that make the gospel visible. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. Remember that guest speaker we had a couple of weeks back, he talked about the darkness in the world is not the issue, it's not the problem. It's the absence of light that is the problem. <laughs> and you and I are the light. We've got to be in that darkened world and let our light shine. Gandhi said, once I liked their Christ, but I'm not sure about their Christians. Friedrich Nietzsche, that German philosopher who propagated that thought that God is dead, he said, I want to see a little more of the redeemed if I am to believe in their Redeemer. So we live in a changing world, particularly in the area of tolerance where we are to respect others' beliefs and practices without approving of their behaviour. Today we are branded as intolerant and fanatical and bigoted and are open to severe criticism when you make a stand for religious freedom and make a stand against freedom of sexual preference and other sins of society. You're tagged as self-righteous, biased and intolerant. But I want to declare to you people today that as Christians, we believe in an exclusive God. For there is one God, one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. The one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's no other way. The one who said, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the same one who said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Folks, that truth is still the same today. God's truth doesn't change. Society doesn't act or set the standard for God's law. Society doesn't do that. God sets the standard. He is an exclusive God and there is no other, but I tell you one other good thing here, he is an inclusive in his love. It's for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's for whoever is thirsty, come and drink because we know there is no other way for our thirst to be quenched except through the Lord Jesus Christ feel the emptiness of our life. Well, I'll, I'll just give you one more as I try to wind up here. One other prayer that Jesus prays for the church and that is that you and I would experience the joy of God. So that verse 13, so that we may have the full measure, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
When does a body of believers experience the joy of God? I'll tell you. When they sense the glory of God, when they're established in the Word of God, when they are united in the love of God, and they go forward in the mission of God. That brings joy. Amen? Amen? That brings joy. That's when you experience joy, when you're doing those things, fulfilling the prayer of Jesus. You, Paul the Apostle, yes, the one who was the greatest missionary statesman that ever lived, yeah, the one who wrote more of the New Testament than any other person, yeah, I am that man. Well, why are you, what are you doing on that ship? The ship's about to sink. He said the ship might sink. And you might sink, but I won't. I'm the unsinkable saint. I'm in the place where God wants me to be. Remember in Timothy, he said, I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service or putting me into his service. And so Paul says, yeah, the ship might sink, but I'm put. What do you mean put, Paul? Well, you see, I was sent and I went. I was obedient to the call. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And now I'm put. I'm in the place where God wants me to be. Are you Joe Thompson? Yeah. The one who's a gifted administrator if you say so. The one who has an incredible family that have allowed her to be the administrator of this church. The one who could fill any position in any of our churches in Australia. Well, what are you doing at Axis? Oh, well, I'm put. What do you mean put? Well, I was sent and I went. And now I'm in the place where God wants me to be. Amen? Amen. You Jesus of Nazareth? Yep. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the one who claimed to be the son of God? Yes. The one who healed the blind, healed the lame and the sick, raised the dead? Yes, I am that person. The one who said all power in heaven and earth is given unto me? Yes, I am that person. Well, what are you doing on the cross? I'm put. What do you mean put? You see, I was sent and I went. And now I'm in the place where God wants me to be. Any questions? No. Oh, by the way, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You. You, you, me, into the world to fulfill his purpose. Get the message? 
the best way I know how to finish up a service like this is to um, take communion. I, I think communion is a time when we can... Well, it's supposed to be a time of remembrance. We take this in remembrance of him. We do this in remembrance of him. It also means to make a fresh commitment to the Lord when we take communion. We would take the bread and we take the cup. And we say, God, look, I, 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 <laughs> I know I'm not all I'm supposed to be and I feel ashamed of taking communion. Don't allow communion to be a curse. It's supposed to be a blessing. None of us are perfect, but Jesus invites us to come as we are with the right attitude and the right motive and the right intention. Hey, the good news is when we remember what he's done, when he died on the cross, he died for all of your sin that you've ever committed, that you ever will commit. He's already died for that. He's already forgiven you of that. You've just got to believe that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you can <coughs> confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus died on the cross, not just for those of you who are here in this world, but those who couldn't give a hoot about him. He's already died on the cross. He's already forgiven them in that sense. Do you believe that? It's unbelief, the thing that causes people to go to hell. Unbelief. Believe, believe, believe. If you and I believe that the transaction has been done, we'll say, God, okay, I take this bread, I take this cup in remembrance of what you've done for me. I don't deserve it. Jesus says, I didn't ask whether you deserve it or not. I've paid the price. It's not what you've done. It's what I've done that matters. It's been completed. And we come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And we rejoice. Amen? And you know you're not walking as you should be in your faith and your walk with God. Most of us here are probably not in that place and walking close to the Lord as we want to. But he still tells us to come. And believe that he has provided everything we'll ever need. And we say, thank you. We take it with gratitude in our hearts. And maybe when you do that, maybe when we come forward, there'll be a table up the back for those who, there's no room for people who can't come, or uh, down the front there'll be a table. 
up the back for people to come and take the bread. I was going to invite people to come forward and take the bread and the cup. And if you want to stand out in the front and thank the Lord for what he's done for you and express your love and gratitude for him, who knows what might fall down upon our hearts today. The Holy Spirit may fall upon us. I'm not going to manipulate it. I'm not going to dictate it, how God, the Holy Spirit works. But if you come in a willing, repentant heart, trust him, believe in him, acknowledge him. We do this until he comes. We take this communion as a reminder until he comes. There's a thought here. When we take the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death. You know what that means? You acknowledge what he's done. You believe what he's done. That Jesus died for you. And there's nothing more we can do. He says, okay, Lord, I take the bread. It reminds me of a broken body. I take the cup. It reminds me of your shed blood. I take and eat. I invite you to come this morning. If you want to come down and take piece of bread and a cup if you want to go over in the corner you want to go back to your seat and, and take that and listen eat and drink when you are ready okay you go back and you meditate you think about it what Christ has done and say Lord it's me I stand before you today it's me Lord transparent before you do with me as you will help me to respond speak to me Lord help me to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. So we thank you, Lord, for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your obedience to your Father. And we don't want, Lord, this to be a ritual today, something we do once a month, but let it be a meaningful time of declaration, of affirmation. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice spoke your love to me draw me nearer 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 blessed lord to the cross on which you died thank you lord